Well, hi, everybody. My name is Eric Tonis, as Corey said, and it's good to be with you all. I love doing this, partnering with your churches and the ministers in those churches as the ministry that's been going on before you came here and will continue after you leave here will be hopefully accelerated as we gather together tonight. I, I love the theme we'll be thinking about. I hope you're ready to learn. I hope you're ready to think deeply. I hope you're ready for God to work in your hearts. The only reason we gather like this is so that God will meet with us and draw us closer to him wherever you may be right now. It can be overwhelming to teach a group like this because I know how many different places you all come from, where your hearts are. I have no doubt some of you have vibrant relationships with the Lord. Some of you likely don't have a relationship with him at all. I know you're all over the place, and I am so thankful that the Spirit of God knows exactly where you are tonight and is more than able to meet you right where you are tonight and this weekend and take you closer to your Creator. That's the goal that I have. Well, I am delighted to be here. I am a professor of, I teach the Bible at Biola University, and I'm also a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada. And I want to show you a picture of my family. How are we doing? Are they there, guys? Well, that's not what you were expecting, maybe. But that's my church family. I really wanted to start with my church family because when I come to something like this, I want you to know I'm not just some speaker, but I'm a member of Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada. I come here under their authority with their blessing and their prayers. They've been praying for you. They've been praying for this time. And I come representing my local church. This is my church family. These are the people who will take care of my wife and kids if I die. These are the people who are uh, the authorities in my life, the support structure in my life. I'm deeply thankful. These aren't all of them. These are a bunch of our food bank workers. But, but I know all those people. I love all those people. Some of them are easier to love than others. But I'm committed to loving them as my church family. I'm very thankful for them. This is a kind of old photograph now of the family I live with every day. That's my wife of... 33 years, Donna. We met in high school when I was a complete idiot. And I moved into her high school halfway through junior year, and her locker was right across from mine, and I immediately noticed her for obvious reasons. And I was drawn to her, and I found out quickly that she was dating a guy named John. And, and they ended up actually being class sweethearts in the yearbook, even. That's how, you know. So I was like, all right, we'll see, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So right near the end of school, she broke up with John. So, it, <laughs> well, John was a friend of mine. So, yeah. So out of respect for him, I waited two weeks. And then I moved in like El Nino. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> right. And then we, we actually dated for seven years before we got married, but it was an amazing journey we've been having together, and we're, I'm so thankful for my wife. She is the most amazing gift to me. She's a daily conduit of God's grace and kindness and patience. She's funny, and she's smart, 
and I delight in my wife. And then we have my daughter on, on your left, Caroline, my daughter Paige in the middle, and my son Sam, the taller zoo, and my son Isaac. That's the family I get to live with. So I just want you to know, it's easy to just look at me as some guy who's delivering information, but I love to teach and preach, but I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor. I'm a member of my church, and most of all, I'm a disciple of Jesus. My mom read the Bible to me when I was a little kid and, and regularly would ask me questions, and at some point when I was little, I became aware that I needed a Savior. And Jesus was that Savior. And I trusted him in repentance and faith. And my life turned around. And it, I've never been the same. And he's been everything to me ever since. But I still am working this out, even as an old man now. And I want you to know, as I'm teaching this weekend, I'm learning with you. I've never taught where I haven't learned at the same time. And so we're in this together. And I want you to know that as we go into this study together. We're going to be studying together the story of Jonah. Probably a familiar story for, to you, that, you know, Jonah and the whale, we're not sure what kind of fish it was, but it's sort of this story that intrigues kids and children's workers. So it's one of those stories get, that gets told a lot, but like a lot of stories that get focused on kids, there's a really weighty message in it. And it's not just, oh, look, the big fish. And it's like Noah's Ark. You know, Noah's Ark, oh, giraffe, two by two, let's make songs about it. God's judging the whole earth in that story. You know, if you just reduce Noah's Ark or the Jonah story to these, these big ideas, these miraculous things that are happening, you're going to miss the bigger, more important point of God bringing judgment. And that's the hard message we have tonight that we're going to look at. This message from Jonah, if, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand, someone will bring one to you, but would you please open your Bibles to the book of Jonah? It can be a hard one to find if you're not familiar with where they are. You know, there are a lot of great songs that you can find on the internet that help you learn the books of the Bible. It's really helpful to learn where they are, um, and so Jonah's near, near the, the, end of the end of the Old Testament, Jonah. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There you go. See Jonah? There he is. Well, I, I want to make sure we know this story from the Bible and not just from sort of our memories as being kids, but li listen to the amazing story going on here. Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring, I just, I don't think you read it. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine anybody who would find the Bible boring. So let's go into the Word right now and hear from the Lord. Please, Lord, help us. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest 
on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, so much going on here. But the first thing I want you to notice is how the book of Jonah starts. This is a prophetic book. You know, in the Old Testament, there are historical books. There is what we call wisdom literature, like Psalms and Proverbs. And then at the end of the Old Testament, there's what we call prophetic books. The major prophets are the bigger books. The minor prophets are the smaller ones in size. It's not about their significance, it's about their size. Jonah being one of the minor prophets, the smaller ones. So Jonah is a prophet, and this is a prophetic book. And Jonah then is intended, his primary role, his primary function is to represent God before people. So if God is here, and the people are here, this is what a prophet does. He represents God before people. If you think about a priest in the Old Testament, he, he sort of does the opposite. He represents people before God. And he offers sacrifice. And he says, let's go, I'm going into the presence of God. I can represent you. But a prophet, his role is to represent God, to proclaim God's word that God gives him to the people with confidence and boldness. And so the first thing we've got to notice is how this starts. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I don't know if you believe in God. I don't assume ever when I'm teaching that, that everyone before me believes in God. And I, I love that you're here if you don't. I'm so glad you're here. And I would love for you to be open-minded this weekend to consider that there may just be a creator of that Big Dipper I was just looking at on my way in here, of the moon that's out there, of the creation. We're going to talk more about the creation tomorrow, but... but Maybe you don't believe in God, but really the message this week could be summarized this way. There is a God, and you're not Him. Some people have said those are the two basic facts of human enlightenment. There is a God, and you're not Him. And then the second thing we need to realize is this God who is, speaks. He has spoken. He's speaking to Jonah now. He was speaking from the very first moment of creation. This is a God who is relational in himself and relates to his creation, which means he speaks to his creation. 
And we have the Word of God open before us, and we believe it's the Word of God. That's why we do this. I mean, in some ways, it's crazy that we Christians gather the way we do regularly, at least weekly, and we gather, and then we come up to a fun place like this, and we, and we sort of pause the play time, and we focus on studying the Bible. Why would we do that? Because we think it's the very Word of God, and we desperately need to hear from Him. Because if we don't, we're just going to be left to ourselves to figure out the answers to the biggest questions of life. And you know how that goes. We all just sort of end up in our little limited perspectives, but God has given us his word, and we have a word from the Lord. And we have a word from the Lord recorded for us when he gives it to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Alan Ross, I, I love this quote by this Bible scholar, a thorough knowledge of the word of God, an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world the flesh, and the devil. Now, you may not believe that the devil exists, that you may not believe even evil exists, but if you take an honest look at the world and an honest look at your own heart, it's really hard to say that evil doesn't exist. But if we're going to even know what good and evil is, if we're going to know what's true and what's false, what's real and what's fake, we need to go to the one who made us in the first place and made everything else in the first place. So this God has spoken. And the next thing I want you to realize is that right off the bat, we are seeing a very dim picture of human hearts. So he says to Jonah, this prophet, whose job is to represent God, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, I could go on and on about the city of Nineveh. It's a well-known ancient city, and it was a people group that had done great evil for a very long time, much of it perpetrated against God's people the nation of Israel. And so when God comes to Jonah and says, bring a message of repentance, offering salvation to the Ninevites, you need to hear that from the perspective of Jonah. One of the most stirring places I've ever been in my life was in Budapest in Hungary, which was completely taken over by the Nazis. And, and as soon as the Nazis left, it, the, about the same week the communists came in who were just as bad to the people in Hungary. And, and they lived under horrific oppression for a long time. And, and the headquarters where the Nazis and the communists tortured the people of Hungary and, and got information out of them and executed them and killed them. The headquarters of the Nazis and the communists had been turned into a museum. And my wife and I visited it when we were there doing evangelism in Hungary. And I will never forget it. It was one of the most sobering places I've ever been. They've left the torture chambers intact. To, to never forget the great evil that had been done to the people of Hungary. But it's the last room in the museum that is, is burned on my mind that I'll never forget. It's called the Hall of the Traitors. I mean, it was bad enough that these people came in and they, they oppressed and murdered 
the people of Hungary. But the Hall of Traders is reserved for photographs and names on the walls of people from the nation itself who betrayed their own people and turned in even family members who were executed. And their photographs were on there. I'll never forget it. I walked in there and I saw these photographs. I'm sure there are family members, maybe still living in the city of Budapest, that, that are still there knowing their family members' faces and names are on the wall of the Hall of Traders. It was so weighty. And, th and then I, I thought to myself, before God, I betrayed him in my sin. If this were the hall of betrayers for the human race, all of our pictures would be on here. And it was, it was convicting to me. And I just began to weep as I was standing in that room, realizing the shame the people in that room must have felt, but the shame we all should feel before a God because we've all betrayed him. Human sin is something true. And in this story, we've got really three main characters. We, we get the sailors later, but, but the three main characters are here are God and Jonah and the Ninevites. God comes to Jonah and says, go to the betrayers, go to the evil, wicked people who have been oppressing and murdering your people and living horribly evil lives and offer them forgiveness. And Jonah has no interest in that. He's not interested. Now, he calls himself a God-fearer to the sailors. And that's true on one level, but the fact is he doesn't fear God enough. Because he actually thinks he can run from him. And so here we have a very clear picture of the evil of the Ninevites. That's what God says. Their evil has come up before me. And so go call them out for their evil. Call them to repentance and to saving faith in me. And then Jonah, the prophet, the religious guy, the moral guy, the representative of God himself... So if we compared it to this story, it'd sort of be me in this story, right? The, the preacher, the one who's supposed to have had this stuff figured out, who knows the difference between good and evil. And what happens in this story is these wicked, evil Ninevites and this really moral, ethically on-the-ball prophet are starting to be seen as in the same category. The religious guy. And the rebels against Yahweh, against God, have the same rebellious heart. That's why I love this story for our context. Some of you may be sitting here tonight feeling like God could never forgive you because you're fully aware of the sin and evil in your own heart. But some of you may be sitting here raised in the church, raised in a Christian family, and by the grace of God preserved from where your heart would have otherwise taken you. And it's easy then to look down on people and look at their lives and say, wow, now that's a sinner. Yeah, I got some issues, but that's a sinner. And I think that is actually the most dangerous place to be. You know, I've preached the gospel in corporate boardrooms I've done ministry among multi-millionaires and even billionaires. And I've done ministry on death row. Do you know when I walk into a prison to talk to guys who are awaiting their execution, 
I have way more confidence that they're going to hear a message from the Lord than that really successful CEO who's got life all figured out. And my, my major burden this weekend is for all of us, every one of us, to realize wherever you may be, we're all in the sin problem together, equally so. And God offers forgiveness in the midst of it. And if you've lived a life that's admirable and ethical and moral, that's great. That's what God calls us to. But if you depend on that for your forgiveness and your righteousness, you can fall in to a religiosity, a moralism that can be more dangerous than a wicked lifestyle. Now, neither of them are God's call for our lives. But here we have this religious man, this prophet of God, who's thinking he can run from God. In some ways, he's missing it more than the pagan people who are wicked and evil that God's calling him to rebuke. And so here we have this amazing picture of Jonah and the Ninevites both needing to know who God is far more deeply than they do. He runs, we're told, in verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord as if that's even possible. It's not. He doesn't fear God enough, see, if he thinks that's even a possibility. He's one of the chosen people, a Hebrew, he says in verse 9. And so this judgment comes upon him. He was told to preach judgment to the Ninevites and judgment's coming on Jonah and those he's with right now. And so our job tonight with the the, the little remaining time we have is to really think about what it means to be a rebel against God, what it means to be a human being. See, God made us in his image for himself. He made us for a relationship with him more than anything else. And that's the only way we'll be fulfilled and have joy and purpose and meaning in life in ultimate and lasting ways. You can get satisfaction just in this world for a little while, sometimes for quite a while, but ultimately, it's in God alone you can really find life. Take my word for it. I've been sinning for 57 years, and sin has never kept its promise to me once. It lies every time it makes a fool of us when we give into it and so we've got to come to grips with our sinful condition our fallen condition before god it's it's what we've got to come to terms with whether whether we're moral and religious whether the effects of sin in our lives are really obvious we're all in this together and so we've got to understand what sin is um you know, before I do that, before I, here's the here's my first concern. When I say the word sin, I realize that we are in a culture that doesn't take sin seriously at all. Sin and words related to sin, guilt, decadence, uh, these words are constantly trivialized. I, I'm not sure about this, but I'd bet a lot of money on it. I bet outside the Bible that the place you have seen the word sin and related words most in your life is on dessert menus. 
I'm serious. I bet in your life you've seen the word sin and related words on dessert menu. It's usually the best dessert on the menu, right? That chocolate lava cake you want so much, that's, that's this sinfully delicious. I've collected, I have dozens of these, I'm just going to show you a few. Cookie dough conquest, sinfully delicious. What in the world? Right? Sin is rebellion against God, yet we use it to describe cookie dough conquest, right? Um, look, look, at, look at this, no guilt, sinfully delicious dessert candy. Sinfully delicious, uh, whatever this is, I don't know what she's cooking up, a little vixen right there, but yeah, so, it's so good, it's sinful, sinfully delicious. You, you've been getting this your whole life. Look at this, nail polish. Sinful colors. That would, that's in the Walgreens right next to my house. I almost flipped that table over because I was so upset that we're using a horrible word like sin to describe nail polish. Can somebody explain this to me? I don't understand what's going on here. But everywhere you turn, you see it. Look, the confection. Confess your love for cheesecake. Forgive me chocolate for I have sinned. I've not yet had my daily confection. How funny is that? What in the world? I mean, do you even realize how we get bombarded by this all the time? Look at this Orange County Register, guilty pleasures. This guy goes and eats pizza, and what does he say? Even for a guy who's paid to indulge, these dishes are sinfully over the top. Now, let me ask you something. When you use wash away your sins hand cleanser, uh, look, for liars, cheaters, and wrongdoers, yuck, yuck, yuck. You see what happens? Talk to me. What happens when you see sin used in that way over and over and over again? Talk to me. It trivializes exactly. That's a perfect word. It makes it trivial, inconsequential. It, it mocks it, right? It makes it really, really hard to grieve over it, to hate it. Because what's the subtle message? It's what you really want. It's what's really good. I know there's some guilt associated with it. Haagen-Dazs, the ice cream, for years their ad campaign was enjoy the guilt. Jaguar, the, the automobile, their ad campaign for several years was oriented around the seven deadly sins. With a Jaguar, you can fulfill all the seven deadly sins that you long for in your life. The constant message then is sin is fun. Sin's what you want. Sin's attractive. Or at the very least, it's irrelevant. It's insignificant, inconsequential. So what's the implication in the other direction? That means then righteousness, goodness, holiness, boring, right? Eh. You want to kill a movie intended for adults? Give it a G rating. Everybody will assume there's nothing good in it if there's nothing nasty in it, right? Doesn't mean non-G movies are nasty necessarily, but you know what I'm saying, right? We, we tend to think, yeah, if there's something sinful, that's what I really want. And before you know it, we, our hearts are almost incapable of hating sin and grieving sin and truly repenting of sin and having a healthy shame for the sin in our hearts, and so we, we've got to realize the reality of this. When I teach, I teach major Christian ideas at Biola at my church. And when I teach, I think the easiest thing for me to prove is that we humans have a sin problem. I mean, read the news. 
Just read the news for 10 minutes and tell me we don't have a sin problem. And look in your own heart and tell me we don't have a human sin problem. But I think it's actually the hardest thing for us to accept. That we, you, I have a sin problem. And we've got to come to terms with it and see it as weighty as it really is. Uh, listen to this. Beatrice Webb was just one of the most brilliant women of the 1800s. And incredibly, at the turn of the century, scholar. She, she was an economist and a philosopher. She, she started uh, schools and systems of thought. She was a brilliant woman. Listen to this quotation. In my diary... 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. She was a, called a humanist. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response no amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? She banked everything on the goodness of human nature. And here in her older days, she's realizing, I think I was banking on something I shouldn't have been counting on. Now here's what's fascinating. 1925. Whose name doesn't she know yet? Adolf Hitler. You think it's bad now from Beatrice Webb's perspective? Just wait a few years, Beatrice, when the Holocaust enters in. And things like that make it impossible for us to say, yeah, humans are all good. We're all just basically good. And just trust your heart and do what every Disney movie tells you to say. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Dear ones, if I followed my heart every time it led me somewhere, I'd be in prison right now for a really long time. <laughs> Sometimes you can follow your heart when it's getting aligned with God and his ways. But a lot of times my heart will lead me right to hell. I need to find God's word and follow it and seek to see my heart aligned with what it says. And so we recognize that the human heart is in a bad place. So I, I so want us to recognize what sin is. You know, look at some of the terms the Bible uses for sin. Missing the mark, evil, disobedience, transgression, stepping over a line, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, righteousness, holiness. The Bible comes at it from all these different angles. These are really important fundamental descriptions of what sin is. You know what I've happened in my lifetime? Even in the church, these words are hard to accept, so we euphemize them. <laughs> We, we find ways to speak around them. And so often now in songs we sing and ways we talk, these kinds of words are getting used less and less. And you know what I'm, I'm okay saying? Things like, I'm wounded. I'm weak. I'm needy. I struggle. Now, those things are all true of us. But do you know what those things are? They're not our basic sin problem. They're the effects of it. They're the symptoms of it. If you define sin as just the effects it has on me of making me weak and needy and struggling and wounded, would you ever think I deserve judgment? Would you, if I came to you and say I'm wounded, would you say then repent because you deserve judgment? 
No, see, we need to appreciate the effects of sin and the way it, it, it hurts us deeply and leaves us weak and struggling for sure. I'm a pastor. I care for people and I weep with them all the time in their struggle. But we can't define sin by just its effects on me or the definition of sin becomes very me-centered and not God-centered. And so when I said in the beginning, there is a God and you're not him, we need to go to him to see how he defines sin in, in, in these ways. I love this concise definition from Buswell. Sin is anything in the creature, us, which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. See, we're off now in a God-centered starting point. A God-centered definition, which is how we need to define everything. And so we recognize that the Bible teaches that sin is true of all of us equally in our fallen condition. None is righteous. And then it's as if Isaiah and here, Paul, anticipate that you say, come on, no one, not even my saintly great-grandmother. No. Not one. Not even her. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And as it says in Romans 6.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Falling short of the glory of God means you were created to glorify God with your life. And in our rebellion against Him, we don't do that. We glorify ourselves. We worship the creature rather than the creator. That's the fundamental problem. And everybody worships. Everybody's devoted to something. The question is, what is your object of worship? And is it worthy of your worship? If it's your girlfriend, if it's your favorite sport or band or whatever it may be, what you give yourself to, your video games, something you're devoted to. When people ask, What's he like? What's she like? What does she really love? What's she passionate about? What will they say? Will it be fashion? Will it be all, all those? These things can be fine, but sometimes they're sinful. Sometimes they're just hobbies, but they've gripped our hearts like only God should grip our hearts. And so we need to realize we're all in this together. And there's something comforting about that. The Bible says there's no temptation that sees you that isn't common to man. Here's the great news you may feel like the worst sinner in the room. But the, the, the starting point is we're all in this together. We all equally need a Savior. We all equally need forgiveness when we boot up in our sinful condition that we've inherited in our human nature. And there's something comforting about that. Not one of you needs forgiveness less than I do when I start off in my sinful condition. And so we've all sinned, all and fall short of the glory of God. And so that means there's no Jonah's righteousness toward anyone even the Ninevites, or anyone you can think of. And there's never anyone too far from God's forgiveness either. And so what we need to realize is sin is not primarily defined by how it affects me or makes me feel. It's not primarily defined by its ethical categories or its moral categories or its social categories or its psychological categories. It's defined by God. And that means it's personal and it's relational. You know what sin is? It's giving our creator the finger. It's rejecting him. It's rebelling against him. It's saying, no, I will decide good and evil. I will determine my life for myself. See, it's a relational and it's in a personal offense against God. It's not just on the horizontal. It starts in our understanding with the vertical. And so we recognize that sin is a problem we all have, and it means we're enemies of God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
See, before we were children of God, if you've trusted Christ by faith, you're no longer considered in that sinful condition. You've been brought out of it, out of darkness into light. But before we are brought out of darkness, we're in a fish-shaking, rebellious stance before God. I know this is hard to accept sometimes because, you know, we're pretty nice people. And by the grace of God, that, that can be true. And you may not shake your fist in God's face, but ignoring Him in some ways is worse. You can't passively coexist with God. I'd rather somebody scream in my face with hatred than completely ignore my very existence. At least if they're screaming at me in, in anger, they acknowledge I exist. There's some level of respect in that, but being completely ignoring of God, in some ways that's even worse. And so we need to realize we're all in this together in an enemy situation here. And so uh, realize it's personal. Listen, you'll never hear a better acknowledgement of sin for what it is than than David here in Psalm 51. In, in one sin with Bathsheba, David broke half the Ten Commandments. But listen to how he owns it. No blaming, no rationalizing, no excusing. I just needed better parents. not my fault. None of this, I'm sorry if you were offended kind of fake apology. Listen, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my pollution. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified, God, in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's a great example of a true repentance is owning it, understanding the God-centered, relational, personal offense that sin is against a holy God. That's what it is. And so until we realize the holiness of God, we'll never understand what our sin is. It's Isaiah. If you've ever read Isaiah 6, it's this, this well-known passage where Isaiah sees a vision of God and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the angel is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he does not say, cool. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he's desperate for God to forgive him, and God does forgive him. But not until he sees God for who he is, and then sees himself for who he is rightly. Listen to Charles Bridges. Pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for the supremacy with him. How unseemly, moreover, is this sin. A creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, and proud in heart. And it's a matter of our nature. We need to realize this. It, it's not just what I do. It starts in the heart. Look. Out of the heart, Jesus says, comes evil thought, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Sin is a heart issue in its core. And it's also a breaking of God's law. It, see, it's an attitude of the, the heart. Again, Alan Ross. Our attitude of our heart is where all sin begins. And then it leads to breaking his law internally and externally. It's a violation of the moral law of God. Now, this is interesting. We don't like laws. And to think, well, I thought it was about relationship, not about law keeping. Yeah, but when you see God expressing his heart through his commands, you keep those commands. And if not, you're breaking his law over your knee. And we don't like being told what to do. 
But God does tell us what to do, like he's telling Jonah what to do, and God's not listening to him. We don't like laws. We don't like commands, do we? Do you guys remember Smokey the Bear? Remember what his slogan was? Yes, only you can prevent forest fires. That's right. You know that's not his slogan anymore? Do you remember what Smokey used to look like? Um, th- this, is, this is the old Smokey. Um, that's my daughter, Paigey. That's the old Smokey. There he is. And that was how he used, he used to point at you. It's all about responsibility, owning it, right? Only you can present forest fires. It's on you, bud. But do you know who starts most forest fires? 15 to 22-year-olds. So when they, they market this no forest fire message, you know what they do? They target young people. And do you know Smokey's had a complete makeover? Do you know he doesn't look like this anymore? And he doesn't say only you can prevent forest fires. This is what he, uh, this is what he looks like now. That's the new Smokey. And listen to the guy who changed, changed the whole image of Smokey. The hugs are a part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who's depicted as rewarding people rather than treating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, which doesn't resonate with young people, while maintaining the seriousness of the issue. Smokey is changing from a teacher or authority figure into a model of positive reinforcement. I'm all for positive reinforcement. I'm all for hugs. I'm all for encouragement. But is there a place in your thinking for God himself telling you what to do and telling you what's right and what's wrong and following in his ways? Or do you think you always know better? Every time we sin, we're saying, I know better than God. I know better than he does. And so the message tonight is a hard one. I think it's a glorious, gracious one from a God who tells us the truth. He's not like a doctor who doesn't tell us the truth. And so tonight's message will will lead in in the coming messages to finding the amazing forgiveness and exhaustive forgiveness and the extravagant love of God that he offers. But for tonight, I I want us to just think about what it means to take God at his word when he tells us we all have a terrible sin problem. I was playing in a flag football game years ago, and I took a shot. I was playing at Biola University. I I played professionally for a while, and I, I was still really good when I got to Biola as a prof, and so the students all wanted a piece of me when I was there, and so they would really come after me, and I took a shot one time, and I thought that somebody had threw like motor oil in my eye or something because it was all like black down here. I said, what in the world? I'm trying to wash it out. and It just wouldn't go away. And I finally went to an eye doctor and he said, yeah, you have a detached retina. And he said, it's almost to the ocular nerve and you need surgery right now or you'll go blind. He said, you don't need it two hours from now. You need it now. So we're either going to send you over to the hospital, put you out, But he said, but actually, the best way is right here in the office, right now, but only if you can take it. And I said, do tell, Doc, do tell. What does that mean? And he said, well, what we can do is we can fix it right now, right here. But what it'll mean is I will take what's called a nitrogen probe, and I will put it in between your skull 
in your eyeball and work it around to the back of your eyeball where the retina is detached and I will weld it back to the back of your eyeball with negative 70 degree nitrogen. And he said, and it'll probably be the worst pain you've ever felt. So I said, let's see what you got. <laughs> and it was the worst pain I've ever felt. You know an ice cream headache? Just make that a million times worse. And it's what I felt. I will never forget that experience. But I wanted a solution. I didn't want him to say, here, sunglasses will be fine. That'll take care of your problem. Or just time. Or, or just, you know, just wait it out. No, he was a good doctor, so he told me the truth. And he gave me the solution that was painful to hear and to experience. But I can see just fine. And we need to have the eyes to see from God's perspective or we'll never find the solution that's really going to take care of our blindness and our hardness of heart and our sinful condition. Oh, I can't thank you enough for how well you've tonight. Blown the stereotype of young people out of the water of attentiveness tonight. I am deeply encouraged. I believe God's been speaking through his word tonight, and I think he's going to keep doing that. But let's leave here tonight thinking about the reality of sin. Not to describe pizza or nail polish, but to describe our attitude toward God and our sinful condition, knowing that until we come to terms with that, we'll never find the solution in Jesus, his son. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being a good doctor. You are the great physician, one of your beautiful titles you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to terms, as hard as and, and painful as it may be, to come to terms with the reality and the depth and the personal nature of our sin before you. Lord, Jonah's a religious man, and the Ninevites are evil people, but they both need forgiveness. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the humility, to have the insight from you, to take you at your word and believe you when you tell us that we deserve judgment, that we have hell to pay, and Jesus took that punishment on himself. So Lord, help us, Lord, to come to grips with our sins so that we can experience the freedom that Jesus and the gospel provides like never before, and we pray this in his name. Amen.